This session is from the 2022 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. All right, folks, good afternoon. Everybody well? I'll take that as a yes. Just like my students. It's still morning, though. Yeah, it is. Especially on the West Coast. I'm just sort of getting rolling here. How many of you were here when we did part one of this yesterday? Okay, so two-thirds of you. Okay. What we'll do is we'll review we'll review a little bit to make sure we're starting all on the same page. And then we're going to take this a, a few steps further in our time today. I want to leave plenty of time for questions, for discussion. Uh, and I will go until my voice gives out or until the spirit stops moving or whichever uh, happens first. So somebody pray for us and uh, ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Go for it. Father, I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we um, go to this session. Um, I pray that you'll be here with Dr. Ray, use him in a special way, and uh, I pray that you would just minister to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's let's review just briefly where we were yesterday, and I'm going to do what I do with my grad students, is to have you all do the review on what you took away, which is a test on me, not on you. Okay? So those of you that were here last uh, yesterday, what, what were some of the main things that you took away from our time together and that will, that will help us bring the rest of the group up to speed? Uh, the, the comment that... Real, real loud so they can hear you in the back. The, the comment that all our work, so in my case, my engineering work is ministry. Okay. All right. Yeah, it's not, it's not just the, the things that we do in the workplace when we're not doing our job that count as ministry. But it's the actual, the very work itself, the scripture affirms as ministry, yes. as service. And as service. Yeah, we said the terms, we, I'm, I'm using the term service and ministry interchangeably because they are both translations of the same Greek term diakonia. All right, what else? That's a good start. What else? Yes. Um, you talked about the view of actors and leaders in the church and how they look at people in secular positions, looking, you know, their view of them, making sure that they are talking to them as being in ministry and not just somebody funding the church. That's right. Right. Now, and don't get me wrong, having people who are generous to fund the ministry of the local church is really important. Um, but that's that's not. That's not the, the the whole of what the folks in the workplace are called to do. Okay, so yeah, and I think one thing we tried to remind those of you who are in the pastorate is that when we refer to the pastorate or the mission field as full time ministry, think think further about how the person in the workplace hears that when they come into our churches. They hear that as that they are either in part time or no time ministry. Or service. And, and as we tried to point out yesterday, neither of those things are true theologically. Um, and for some of you, if we need to go back over that ground, we feel free to ask a question about that. We can. Okay, thank you. What else? 
Go ahead. Yes. Uh, you did a good job connecting. Thank you. Moving right along. <laughs> you did a good job connecting Genesis talking about the park and the Ephesians. Yes. Right, right, and it's just the same. Actually, in Ephesians two ten, that's the same word for that the New Testament also uses for work. So, part of the workmanship for which the good works for which we have been created includes what we spend most of our waking hours doing. I'm still not exactly sure how we got those so separated out. And I think most of us think about the good works that we do or what we do when we are not working. Yeah. No, he's the original bivocational pastor. Never, never, thought, never thought about the apostles being bivo, bivocational, but I think most of them were. Um, okay. Uh, yes. Okay. The work was not the curse. Right. Uh, yeah, I think in Genesis 3, as I, as I read it, God cursed the ground, the environment in which work took place, not work itself. That works still because it's created because it was created in Genesis two, ordained in Genesis one and two, not in Genesis three. That we can, we can't view our work as our penalty. We view work as having intrinsic value, and the, like the very work itself has that has that value. Uh, that's, I think that's an important distinction to make. Um, that work still has nobility, even though it's subject to the the effects of the general entrance of sin. Others. This is a pretty good summary. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. <laughs> yeah, well, you were, were you here yesterday? I, I wasn't. But well, no. I don't know. Later. <laughs> you can say something, of course. Well, it was just the theme of what I'm hearing works. Like, why, why did we separate our days off the money? How did it get separated from all our work? That's good. That's going to be the subject of about the next 20 minutes. Yeah, and I just thought, well, we had five days of the job. We come here and where the complaints out there in the culture. We look for the Christians need their Christianity and only take it in church on Sunday, but they don't bring it to the workplace. And I thought right there was the same. Mm -hmm. That's part of it. It has, it has ancient roots okay. that we'll get to in a bit. Okay. Anything else that we missed? Those of you that were not here yesterday, does that sort of get you up to speed? Okay, any questions? If you were not here yesterday, any questions you want to raise before we move on? One other thing I just like that you said is getting rid of saying like a higher calling or full-time ministry without qualifying it as like full-time pastoral ministry. Right. Or, you know, I like right. Just to play on. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, it's a good word. And I think it's really important that our language reflects our theology on this. So we stop talking about, you know, only pastors and missionaries who are in full-time ministry. And only, we stop talking about pastors and missionaries being in ministry. It's, it's, you always, the term ministry always has to have a qualifier 
to designate these a specific arena of service to which someone is called. We don't, there's no hierarchy of callings. I think that's biblically insupportable. Um, and there's no, you know, if, you know, I'd be careful how we use the term secular jobs, because if this is my father's world, then all of life in my father's world is sacred. And I don't, I don't see that the, the dichotomy between the sacred and secular is entirely artificial. And I think that's, that may have been the most significant contribution of the Reformation was to basically what they thought was once and for all getting rid of that. Um, there's a, there's a, we'll get to that in just a minute. I think Luther sort of inadvertently planted the seeds for its renewal uh, in the aftermath of the Reformation. Okay, one more, and then we'll move along. Just a quick observation, maybe. You know, we talk about, but I just noticed in my life, working in the office environment, and you start a new job, it's not that very long before you start sensing and then also having discussions with and deeper Bible discussions. You, you, you get a sense of who the true, sincere believers are in the office and there's something about them you just kind of are drawn there right and you and then it turns out they are <laughs> we, yeah at least we that's the hope okay that's not always true um but i think in many cases that is the deal okay uh, this is if i could summarize our some some of the big ideas if all believers are in full-time service they entered full-time service at the moment they came to faith, not at the moment when they decided where their paycheck was coming from. Okay, those are two different things. Second, I think we, the point we made that follows from that, just by the number of hours spent there, that most people in our churches spend at least 10 times more time in the workplace every week than they do in our church buildings. And if that's true, then we, I think we, should, we shouldn't be surprised to see that the workplace is the primary place in which our folks can love their neighbor, in which they can serve their community, and in which they're they are spiritually formed. And I think, in my view, one of the primary pastoral tasks is to help our, the people who we serve have their antennas up so that they recognize how God is shaping them and forming them by the various interactions they have in the workplace. My guess is that for most of the people we serve, what God's doing in their lives in the workplace goes right over their heads because they're just not on the lookout for the things that God's doing to shape their character. That's why, you know, my encouragement to all of you who preach and teach regularly is to illustrate from, the, from workplace interactions as often as you can so that the people who are you know, slugging it out week after week in the workplace can be a bit more attentive to what God is doing to shape their character. All right? Um, now, a question I, I, this, that this begs for us. Hmm? Two. <clears throat> Yeah, I need to share my screen again here. Um, so. 
So, what I would suggest is that we ensure that our language matches our theology and that our service in the workplace includes the very work itself. Now, this begs the question of if the if, if the Bible's as clear on this as I'm making it out to be, I think I've accurately represented the biblical text. If you, don't, if you don't think so, you're welcome to push back on that. But if the Bible is as clear on this as we've made it out to be, then how did we get, how did we deviate so far from that to where, you know, my, my seminary students, it's not uncommon for them to tell me, I grew up in the church. This is the first time I've heard this. That's, I mean, now, you, you all, I mean, we took a show of hands on this yesterday for whom, uh, for how many of you this was the first time you heard this. And, and it wasn't very many, but because I, I think you all, have, you know, I would expect a little bit more out of people who have been pastoring and in, in leading churches for some time. But I think the normal experience, unless your church is out of the norm, uh, the normal experience is that our, our folks, our folks who are in the workplace don't hear a lot of this. And so... I started thinking about how how did we get to where we are today? Where this is a in my view, I, the way I put this is this is a garden that constantly needs weeding. And it, you know, I'm 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 telling my students the same thing I told them 20 years ago. Because this is this is we're having a really difficult time seeing this take root. And in in the particularly in the regular preaching and teaching of people here in our churches. So how did how did it get that way? How, why did the reformers have to do such a such a 180 turn theologically? And then sort of how, how have we gotten back sort of to where we are today, which is I think largely, we've largely recreated the sacred secular dichotomy that was so that was so dominant in medieval times that the reformers worked so hard to to fight against. Okay? So that's what I want to take a few minutes to explain, and then we'll we'll have some discussion and kind of see where we go from there. So, in my view, this this dichotomy between the sacred and the secular is a baptized version of what the Greek philosopher Aristotle first began to teach two or three hundred years before Christ. Okay. Aristotle distinguished between the active life and the contemplative life. The active life was all the things that you had to do to sort of keep your life afloat. Your work, keeping a house, raising children, you know, all those, all those things that were just the normal stuff of life. The contemplative life was the arena, according to Aristotle, in which your highest good could be achieved. And it was the life, it was the life of, of what the Greeks called leisure, which is different than what we refer to as play. Okay? Leisure was the time of your life that was dedicated to, to thought, to reflection, to contemplation, to thinking about some, what Aristotle referred to as the higher things of life. And you, <clears throat> you engaged in the active life as a means to be able to engage life at this at much higher level on the contemplative side. Okay? 
so that your work fit clearly into what Aristotle described as the active life. And it only functioned as a means to an end. It had no value in and of itself. Because I think this is one of the reasons why Aristotle was, had some of the odd things he had to say about children and families. Because, he, because those were often, he viewed those as an impediment to achieving the, your highest good. Right? Now, that bumps up pretty significantly against the Christian worldview in a lot of different ways. I mean, the, the New Testament had a lot to say about families that was entirely different. It had a lot to say about sexuality that stood the Greco-Roman world on its head. But it didn't really challenge much to speak of or at least it didn't get a lot of traction, was this dichotomy between the active and contemplative life. Now, when, the, when the, the early church fathers began to sort of more systematize Christian doctrine, and you know, they started, they, they had to organize this, this sort of mass, uh, this, these mass conversions and these mass church plants that grew out of the early church, they, adopt, they, they adopted some of the Greek, some of the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle that was popular at the day. So, for example, uh, in, in, the ancient, in the ancient world in general, it was, it, and this came out of the Greco-Roman influence, commerce was viewed very negatively. And part of the reason for that was because there, were, there was no such thing in the ancient world as a dynamic market economy like we have today, where you could do well financially and do good at the same time. In the ancient world, hardly anybody achieved what we would call um, you know, socioeconomic upward mobility. Because for the most part, you were stuck in the ancient world in the same socioeconomic class into which you were born. There was no, we mentioned yesterday, there was no such thing as career counseling because there were, there, you, you had one career option if you were a man and that was to do the trade or the work that your, your father had done and there were even fewer career options for women. And there was no such thing as an independent single woman in the ancient world. And you were either connected to your family of origin or your family by marriage. This is why this is why when the Bible talks about widows being so vulnerable, they were they were because they because they weren't connected, especially if they die if they if their husbands died childless, they weren't connected to any kind of family that could pick up their support. In the ancient world, the, the economic life was what we call a zero sum arrangement. That is, to put it to put it a different. You guys familiar with that term? If, if, if the, economic, the size of the economic pie was relatively fixed, and if I got a bigger piece, you got a smaller one. There was a necessary connection between economic winners and losers. Okay? And there's, there are a handful of places in our modern economy where that is true. But for the most part, that, that's not, not an accurate description of the way economic life works today. We have a dynamic market economy that's constantly expanding the size of the economic pie which is why upward mobility is, is not only a possibility today, but it's expected for most people. Um, now, there's some communities where that's, not, where that's not the case, but I think for the, for the most part, it's expected that you will be better off 
you know, if I'm talking to somebody in, you know, saying in your place, you, you expect to be better off financially 10 years from now than you are today. And it's, it's unusual that you, that you wouldn't be, right? So in essence, the way people got wealth, here's sort of the bottom line, the way people got wealthy in the ancient world was largely through morally illicit or questionable means. It was either through theft or extortion or some sort of abuse of political power. Um, and the, the rich, you know, the, the rich basically got richer at the expense of the poor. Right? And that's one, that's one, one of the main reasons why commerce was viewed so skeptically in the ancient world. I also think this is one of the reasons, not the only one, but one of the reasons why Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than a camel to go through the eye of a needle because there were so few morally acceptable ways to accumulate wealth, to doing it by honest work, the economic system just wasn't set up to do that. And so understandably, commerce and business were viewed very skeptically throughout the, the ancient world. And the, and the church fathers carried that skepticism into the first couple hundred years of church history. One of the most famous pieces, I think, by Justin Martyr, was it, how, how can the rich be saved? Because it was assumed that, they, that, that to become wealthy involved a significant degree of moral corruption. Okay? Now, fast forward a couple hundred years, and medieval Catholicism, I, I think it's not quite accurate to say that they baptized Plato and Aristotle, but a lot of medieval Catholic theology was an attempt to synthesize the Greek philosophy of Plato and Aristotle with Christian theology. And that, in, in places, that had some really good results. In other places, not so much. And one of the places that was not so much was that it baptized Aristotle's dichotomy between the active and contemplative life which is why you had things like medieval monasteries, which I'll, I'll remind you were also very profitable businesses. That's a, that's a well-kept secret of the medieval world. But for the most part, priests, nuns, and monks had callings in the ancient world, or in the medieval world. Everybody else, they had jobs in order to support them. And, and the, the view of salvation in the medieval world was that being cloistered in a monastery actually puts you a leg up in being able to work out your salvation. Okay, so when Luther and Calvin come along with their doctrine of justification by faith alone, by grace alone, that drove a stake right into the heart of medieval monasticism. And it, and it became very clear that you don't need to be cloistered in order to... to uh, to, to respond to God's grace through faith. Luther also popularized the notion that, that followed from this of the worldly calling. He said that God calls people to all kinds of arenas of service in the world as well as in monasteries, as well as in the church. Okay? Luther was really clear about this. He said it's just as holy to change a baby's diaper as it is to teach a Sunday school lesson. And Calvin 
the way he put it, the whole world is a theater of God's glory. And every arena of service is potentially one in which God can be glorified. And so the reformers, I think, they, they, they God bless them, because they really did a number on that dichotomy between the sacred and the secular. Because the, the, the secular, Aristotle's active life became the secular, and the contemplative life became the sacred. And they abolished that distinction theologically. And it opened up a whole world for people who had, who had uh, up to now, had just seen their jobs as just their jobs to survive. They're really not more than just a paycheck. And enable them to see their work as something that God was calling them to, something that God was blessing, and something that God was using in his service. I think they recaptured the text we looked at yesterday in Colossians 3. That in whatever you do in your work, it's the Lord Christ whom you are serving. Right? Now, what, ha- what happened, I think, in the aftermath of the Reformation was in- inadvertent. I-, I don't think it was intended. I don't think Luther intended to undermine his own doctrine here. But in Luther's view of the two kingdoms, or the right and the left hand of God, where the right hand of God is the stuff that happens in the church and is the stuff that has more direct, what we would call direct spiritual implications. He put work in the arena of the left hand of God, the ordinary life. And I think that inadvertently planted the seeds to renew that dichotomy between the sacred and secular. And in my view, this... This is a vast, vast oversimplification of church history, I recognize. But if you fast forward a couple hundred years to the pietistic movement, I think that that solidified the seeds that Luther had replanted again, where the, the heart of the pietistic movement was ministering to a person's soul. And they saw, they saw human beings as essentially fundamental, fundamentally souls, where the body didn't matter as much. Community didn't matter as much. And I think the, the upshot of it was that we've, we, have, we have misread the late theologian Eldon Trueblood's statement that there are only two things that last forever. Remember what he said those were? The word of God and the souls of human beings. Like, for one, I think he was wrong about that because the body lasts forever. It'll just be a brand new one, thankfully. I'm going to have two good shoulders in here, which is going to be terrific. Uh, but I think, and, and at least in my eschatology, uh, which I, I, I think is shared by most people in this room, uh, the millennial kingdom will be on the earth. It'll be an earthly kingdom that then, at some point, transitions into the eternal state. But the Bible calls the, the eternal state is referred to in the figure of speech is not, is not the wilderness. It's not the dead. It's the city of God is what the eternal state's uh, referred to as a figure of speech. It's, it's, a, it's a figure of development and of work and jobs and economic flourishing. And I think that's the picture of it. 
So what I want to be careful about is that we, uh, that we, I think we grasp from Scripture what things have eternal significance. And if it's true that in whatever we do in our work, it's the Lord Christ whom we are serving, and that, it seems to me, follows from that, that our work then is not something that's going to burn up when the Lord returns, but that our work has eternal significance, not only for the people that we touch and the people we lead to the Lord, but also for the very work that we do in how it serves the common good, how it serves our communities, how it loves our neighbor, and how it contributes to flourishing. What I want to be careful about is that we, we don't adopt a worldview, a view of a human being, that I think is incomplete. You know, we are not souls on a stick. You know, our bodies matter. And we are created for community, created for relationships and community. So our communities matter to God. Those things have eternal significance in the here and now. So I think that's a little bit of how we got, that got to where we are today. And I think what we need desperately is a renewed sense of what I think the reformers were absolutely right about, is that if the whole world, if this, if this is my father's world, then all of it is sacred. As Abraham Kuyper put it, there's, not, there's no square inch of the world that Christ does not claim mine. And if that's true, then I think we, we view our work, I think, really differently. Uh, and, we, and I think what the Reformers did so effectively was to abolish that hierarchy of callings. And where nobody, nobody, in, nobody in God's economy is a second-class citizen based on where they get a paycheck from. All right, let me, let me stop there and just take some questions or some comments. I suspect there's quite a few here. So, yes. Wasn't there a Pharisee sort of, uh, and I feel it's the term for it, but... Even that term, hypostatic union, that, that word, will never say God on him. That came about from people having to deal with a heresy where there were some teachers even claiming yeah. that because Jesus couldn't have been materially human because that would be bad, which goes right. back to your answer. Yeah, no, it's a good, that's a, re, it's a really good observation. They were fighting the heresy of Gnosticism, which claimed that the body, the body didn't matter. The soul was all that mattered, and so you could do one of two things. You could either eat, drink, and be merry, and you know the body because the body doesn't matter, or you could be an ascetic because the body the, the body's an impediment to the, the health of the soul. The reality is philosophically, the reason we have our bodies is because most of the capacities of our souls need bodies to actualize themselves. Uh, you know, so anyway, good good observation. Yes, I was just curious um, how did Working the ministry, um, which I think, um, how does that pertain to the passage where Paul talks about how when you decide to get married, your family has to come before you, come before your ministry? Um, and because I've heard a lot of people use that passage about Paul, um, you know, tend to get married by Christian policy. Yeah, good, really good question. I actually think Paul was single as an apostle. Um, I also think Paul was previously married. Yeah, because I, I, I don't think he could have been a member of the Sanhedrin without being married. 
So what I, what I, it's a strictly speculation. What I think happened is Paul's, life left, Paul's wife left him when he came to faith. Um, so, but, but I think your, your point, I think, is, is well taken. Um, that we are, and I said yesterday, we're hardwired for work. We're also hardwired for Sabbath and for rest. Um, and I, 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 don't, I don't view our moral obligations hierarchically. I view them, you know, simultaneously. That we are called, we are called to, to, to love God, to do our ministries, to do, um, to do our work in the local church, to serve our families. We're called to do all those at the same time. And we make decisions on that, not based on a, a rigid hierarchy, but based on uh, how urgent the need is and, and the previous neglect. Okay? So I'm taking a couple days off from teaching when I get home because I didn't see my wife for the last three or four days. Um, and so am I, am I saying that my, my family is more important than my, my work with Talbot and Viola? Not in, not in an absolute hierarchy, but for this, for the next few days, uh, my family's more important. Right? Now I have times when I've had to say, um, you know, I, I just I've got a really heavy season here at school. Uh, I had a you know I have a writing deadline or something, and you know that's a higher priority at that time than what my family would be. Then it's your question. Yeah, it kind of does. Okay, sounds like it kind of doesn't too. <laughs> I'd say yeah, your family life is a. I'd say it's a vocation, right? A vocation is simply an arena of service to which God's calling you, right? And we are called to multiple vocations all at the same time. Okay, yeah. I think that's something that we miss. And the reason I say that is because many years ago, I felt guilty if I was working X number of hours beyond whatever Y was. And that was the wrong perspective because that I'm always working, honoring my commitment to Jesus, honoring what God has called <clears throat> There's certain times that there are, are demands beyond. Of course. Now, of course. Examples look at a bar. All right. Some of those folks are 14 or 16 hours a day because that's what's required for them to be. That's right. That's right. And we all depend on what they do. But yeah. I think, I think, that, I think we have tried to spiritualize certain things over others and miss the whole thing. Well, I think that, that's a fair point, I think. Yeah. Touche. Yes. So I guess to build on that, and I didn't, sorry, make your previous uh, session. You're, but, you're, um, you're excused. What do you teach, I guess, pastors or other people in full-time ministry? In what? In, <laughs> in pastoral, vocational yeah. ministry. No, not in vocational, pastoral ministry. Pastoral ministry. There you go. Um, I'm sorry, about, I'm not, that's not fair that's to beat okay. on you because you weren't here yesterday. <laughs> about how to address women in the church, and, um, you know, you just... We're mentioning, like, okay, men have a family and they work. A lot of women, That's like right. myself, have a right. family and work. But I feel like there's a, um, a hierarchical priority placed on the family versus the work, or almost a 
yeah. looking down upon women who yeah. work outside the home. So what do right. you coach ministers or um, people? Is, yeah. Uh, you know. Well, I think that, yeah. And I think that, you know, the assumption is that, uh, you know, our families are, are, are well cared for. And for the most part, we are parenting our own children. Um, but I think as long as those two things are taken care of, then I think, you know, our, our pastors need to be affirming women in the workplace as well as men, uh, because women have gifts that they can offer that men don't have, uh, and have, I think, a really important place. Um, and increasingly, uh, increasingly women who have, you know, well-established careers are finding our churches to be not so welcoming places. Uh, because they're not they're not affirming those things. Now, I'm not suggesting we affirm things just because people want us to affirm them. Right. But I think the you know, the Bible doesn't really place I think any distinction uh, that's based on gender when it comes to affirming the work that both men and women do as their service to Christ. Um, and this doesn't you know this that, that you know I'm not I'm not intending to let guys off the hook here with being good dads, uh, because you know I, I'm a lot more worried about guys being workaholics and neglecting their family than I am about women doing that. So uh, your point's well taken, um, and there's you know we, we need to be affirming what people are doing in the workplace as their service to Christ. Sort of end of end of story. Baptist missions for 43 years, and I didn't know it was a calling. Oh, of course, of course. I would not have lasted in Africa, but I know we have always been faithful in going back to our supporting churches and thanking the people who have been there. We recognize mm -hmm. them, you know, year after year, and they've been faithful to God because we know that our living. Depends upon our support. That's right. Of course. As as well you should be. Yeah. And I look, I, I mentioned this yesterday. I tell my seminary students, look, I have no doubt that God's calling you to the pastorate. I have no doubt that God's when God calls people to the mission field, that's where they ought to go. But though but pastors and missionaries aren't the only ones who have a sense of calling. And people people are called to the workplace as well, to their full-time ministry in the workplace. Okay? Now, I don't, want to, I don't want to downplay, you know, the heroic sacrifices that people who go to the mission field make. That's, that's totally true. Um, but I look at some of our business students who they're, they're going to work on the business side of Hollywood. And they're going, they're going to work in really hostile places. Uh, you know, maybe my... <clears throat> my <coughs> home state of California is a little different than here, but uh, we've got a lot of a lot of companies for whom, you know, the, there's a, there's a, a a not so invisible sign that says people of faith not welcome, um, and I think particularly people of Christian faith not welcome. And so we've, we've, our business students, you know, they feel called to those environments. They feel called to go in there and do good work. <coughs> Excuse me. And to represent Christ as best they can. Um, they're not going to do it perfectly. 
but to, to do good work that benefits their communities uh, and contributes to human flourishing, that's, that, that is a, those are just as legitimate a callings uh, as what, what you all felt. And I think it, it, <coughs> it's just as important for people who, are, who feel that sense of calling to the workplace for their hanging in there too. Because we got lots of people who are hanging in there in really tough business situations. Oh, thanks. Good word. Yes. What <coughs> advice would you give to someone who's maybe at a crossroads of deciding to go into pastoral ministry there you or go. other business ministry? So there you go. How do you think through those decisions? They can be taught. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think that depends on you know, you know, where your gifts and skills are, what you're passionate about. Although I'm a little skeptical about this notion of, you know, follow your passion and the money will follow. I think in general that's really lousy <laughs> advice because if you, your passion has to be something that somebody's actually going to pay you for, for the money to follow. Um, and then, you, you know, you seek counsel from whoever you need to. Uh, and then you trust, you, I'd say you move forward, trust God to close doors. Because um, God, you know, last time I checked, God doesn't move parked cars very well. And you, you need to be moving in a particular direction, uh, pursuing something, and trust God to open and close doors as he sees fit. And I think a lot of what we have to recognize is that you, you discover the thing that God's calling you to do, often by trial and error. And sometimes you have to try a few things to know that this is not what I'm called to do. And I think we also have to recognize that just because you found you know, a particular uh, occupational sense of calling doesn't mean that every day is going to be a walk in the park. I mean, you know, we're all, you know, we're all touched by the general entrance of sin. That, I think that explains why we have a lot of things in our workplace today. So you're going to have days where you're going to want to throw in the towel. That's just that's just part of it. Doesn't mean you should. And if if you even if you have ethical challenges, doesn't mean you should throw in the towel either. Because if you throw in the towel, the person who replaces you will have not nearly as sensitive a conscience as you do. Let me give you one just one example. Here this is what I think we need to do a much better job of in our churches, in our preaching and teaching. And this is regardless of you know, whether you, you know, regardless of whatever sphere you are serving in a local church. But I think it's especially true with our high school and college students. We introduced them to this much earlier on. But I think our folks who are in these various professions, various jobs, need to have a sense that they get from us about how their work constitutes their service to God. We need to help them see that a little bit more clearly. So take just I'll just take one one for example. We have I have a lot of I have a lot of accounting majors in my business ethics classes, <clears throat> and I ask them because accounting is a little harder for people to wrap their arms around this concept with. But I say think about the people who do public accounting who do who go in and audit the books of public companies. Say what would happen if they didn't do their job well. Look what happened when, this was years ago, when Arthur Anderson was auditing Enron, or not auditing Enron, would be a better way to put it. Um, I grew up in Houston, where Enron was based. 
And as a result of their auditing failures, that's not the whole reason. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lower the boom on the accountants only, but they definitely played a part. Thousands and thousands of people lost everything. They lost everything that they had worked their entire lives for. Many of them were close to retirement age and they just put retirement on hold forever. They knew they were, as a result of that collapse, they knew they were going to have to work for the rest of their lives. And they hoped, I can't tell you how many of them hoped that they didn't run out of money before they died. What happened with Enron, and it was a whole, that was the culmination of a whole spate of accounting failures around the late 90s, early 2000s, was that people lost trust in a company's financial statements. They lost, they lost trust in the, the transparency and openness that's necessary for our economy to function. And in fact, Business Week had a, 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 com a commentary article that said, we, well, we have to restore trust in our economic system. And if the auditors don't do their work well, then bankers don't trust companies' financial statements. Investors don't trust those. And then those investors include all of, any of us who have 401k plans. That, we, that if, we can't, if we can't trust those financial statements, then the transparency that's so important to a flourishing economy goes out the window. And so... Why do we tell our accounting students when you're, when you're, you know, scouring the books of a public company, that's a part of your service to Christ, to ensure that your communities and the companies you serve are flourishing, because at the end of the day, those are people's lives and well-being, and livelihoods that come down to those folks doing their job well. So some of that, I mean, when, I think we need to do this with people who are in marketing, who are engineering. I mean, think, think about if engineers don't do their jobs well, I'm not driving across another bridge for the rest of my life, okay, among other things. Uh, you know, if plumbers don't do their jobs well and don't see that as their calling, okay, I, you know, I don't know too many of us that would consider us having flourishing lives if our pipes were leaking all the time. Something as small as that, I think it contributes to our, our sense of communities and individuals and families flourishing, experiencing the full shalom that God intends for us. So anyway, that's in my view what we need, what we need much more of in our preaching and uh, we need somebody to actually somebody somebody to write a good book on that. That gives a little bit, that helps us spell this out in a little bit more detail. Hopefully, this is enough to get you started thinking about that. But if I, I mean, if I were preaching regularly, I'd have a panel of a panel of business people in various occupations uh, have be on a panel to ask me questions every week about how my the big idea of my message connects with what they do in their workplace. At least I'd be consulting with them before I preached. That's for next year's conference. Um, we're going to do more of that. Yes, we'll give you the last word, so it better be really, really good. Oh,
Uh, I just wanted to say I read a book back when I was in my thirties called By Scotland Tech called a different drum. Mm -hmm. And what jumped out at me was exactly what you said. He said, I know the people, I went and met them, they were sitting in the offices up there in DC making the chemical formula for Agent Orange said going to church on Sunday oh, yeah. and praising God and thought what a good yeah. Christian they were. Yeah. And never made the connection. That's right. Touche. Hey, thanks for being part of this. It's been a treat to be with all of you. Praise the Lord that my voice held out. And uh, you're here. Have a good rest of the conference. And uh, we'll see you again soon, I hope. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2022 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.